Uh, it's Marty here. Welcome to First Up. It is Rapa. That's Wednesday, the 12th of October. Coming up, well, the government's proposed agricultural emissions scheme got the two responses you'd expect. Some farmers reckon that'll put us out of business. Environmentalists say it doesn't go far enough. I'm going to speak to one side today. We find out about the emergency pods which are popping up in Tairawhiti in preparation for the next natural disaster and the future of the company which runs the Whakapapa and Tūrua ski areas hangs in the balance with the administrators called in. At this stage it looks like liabilities are in the region of between 40 and 50 million dollars. I can't take off the table the fact that it could actually all close and the assets have to be sold. Welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere. Let's start in Australia, shall we? As is our Wednesday tradition, the weather is the big story there, so I'm going to lean on the fence um, and say g'day to my mate there in Brisbane, Pam Corkery. G'day Pam, how's the weather? Look, it's terrific, it's just (laughs) terrific, and it's going to be terrific for a few more days. This is because Australia is going, or it's heightened by El Nino for the, no, La Nina for the third season in a row, so that's rare. But sadly, already one man has been found dead in a submerged vehicle in New South Wales where there are currently 98 flood warnings in place. So the worst isn't expected to start until later this morning, so that's even after that, going through until Friday. And it looks like, for all that, Victoria is in for the worst of it. People have been told to stockpile at least three days' food, all your meds and pet food. Good thinking, actually. Catchments, you know, are full. Any additional rain will trigger floods. The ground's absolutely sodden, so in even a minor amount of rain will be a real risk. Um, in Tasmania, heavy rain. In Queensland, thunderstorms we're going to get. Queensland has also been urged to prepare for an extended cyclone season of an estimated 11 cyclones over summer. 11? 11, I know. And what about this? The risk of, I had to look this up, of thunderstorm asthma is also high. What is that? Have you, like actual you just exactly, asthma? Exactly. No, the wind pushes the grass pollen particles into your lungs and even people who have never had asthma can get it. Oh. I know. And just briefly, don't start me on the range of mozzies, mozzies out to get us. The new arrival is the mosquito-borne Japanese encephalitis virus, which arrived last year, which can be fatal. And experts are saying that's changed the landscape of mosquito-borne disease in Australia forever. Wow, we. I mean, that's right. I've seen enough flooding of this already. I mean, I know we've crossed New South Wales a couple of times this year to talk of, you know, once in a lifetime flooding. Boy, uh, emissions. Okay, here we go. What about, let's uh, get to something different here. What's this Royal Commission into a thing that's called robo-debt? What, what is that? Well, robo-debt was, as it sounds, um, it was computers at the Social Welfare Department, whatever they call it, computers matching welfare payments and income data from the tax office. There was limited to no oversight, and they'd fire off these letters saying you're in debt. Now, many, many people weren't in debt at all. Thousands of Australians were wrongly pursued for, for debts. Many people 
who were, you know, issued robo-debts. When this was happening, they'd be on the telly every night crying, people going, I've just got a, a debt bill for 40 grand. They're suffering from anxiety and depression and they didn't understand why they kept coming, couldn't make contact with the department. And some families uh, contributed to their loved ones' suicides. It was awful and funnily enough under Scott Morrison. So the scheme was suspended in 2019. The former coalition agreed to $1.2 billion to settle a class action. But now there's 200,000 people nearly just on that with outstanding robo-debt who will get letters saying it's all wiped, it's okay. And there's a royal commission into how the whole thing started in the first place. No wonder. Disaster, yeah. yeah. Hey, um, now this is an interesting one. I love it when people buy a house in an area and then decide it is their domain. Uh, residents of Sydney's Eastern Beaches up in arms over a proposal to allow paid parties to be held there. Are these are these private beaches or what? Or just no, these are, pub- these are public beaches that they've paid thirty four grand or something uh, to the council to have a roped off section right in front of the pavilion for a five thousand person party. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, you get to public beach. Listen to that ostentatious tripe. You know, the guests will be dressed all in white. They'll pay up to $93 plus $15 membership for the privilege. Um, they have to dress elegantly, bring their own white tables, chairs, crockery cutlery, and a white garbage bag to take away their That's own brilliant. refuse. Where's the fun in that? Do you have to bring your own white food? What have you got? I've just got an egg white omelette. Yeah. That's all I had. Yeah. Yeah, and, just, and, and look, the top just, half of coconut ice, because I don't know I've what got, else you can take. I've got, I've got, you know, one of those electricity wrapped in chocolate things. Locals <laughs> say the beach is for the beach, for people to connect with nature and swim, to serve, build sandcastles, relax and recuperate. Well, last time I was there, wasn't that long ago, a large sand server was going along scooping up needles used by heroin addicts. So <laughs> it's, it's, but it's Bondi Beach. It's everyone's. I, I'm with the locals. <laughs> well, as long as, you know, as long as... Yeah, I like the fact you've got to bring your own cutlery, your own table, your own chairs, yeah. and your own rubbish bag. That is that is one of the best scams I've ever heard. It's I amazing. Reckon. I mean, I, I see your point, and also they're dressed like tosses. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Pam, thank you so much. Always good to catch up with you this year's Pam Cork Creek. Don't go away without oh. permission again. Okay, okay, won't do. All right, cheers. There we go. Pam Cork um, I'd just like to know, uh, you are listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. 2101, uh, the, the, the the beach party. Is that, the number one, is that the best scam you've ever heard in your life? Uh, number two, for those of you uh, that have perhaps gone for things that look great, like beach wedding or that, that classic beach photo of the bride with the veil blowing out the back or just going to a beach thing, uh, do you have memories of that other than lots of sandfly bites around your ankles? Uh, let me know uh, the idyllic thing that you thought was going to happen and perhaps it didn't work out quite so idyllic. Always love hearing those. It'd be nice. There's a lot of complaining in the news at the moment. It'd be nice. Lift my spirits. Anyway. Let's go to the Middle East now. Uh, the biggest story there, obviously, is still uh, the protests in Iran, which have been incredible to see. Alex Beard is with us in Doha, and he's with us now. Uh, kia ora, Alex. How are you? Kia ora, Nathan. I've got to say, um, big scam over here. We're in the lead-up to the World Cup. Yeah. Um, I just heard a friend the other day was quoted the cost of driving to the airport from her hotel, only a 20-minute drive, um, nearly 10000 New Zealand dollars. So, <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. 
you're driven in a what? On, is this on the road made purely out of gold in the gold car with the gold wheels? You can only wish. You can only wish. Wow, we all right. There we go. That's ten. That's a pretty good scam. Okay, no one's going to beat that today. There we go. Alex has just arrived with his royal flush and just hit the table with it. Um, Alex, let's, let's get to this. Um, the, these protests, obviously, we've seen lots of them there going on in Iran. Can you tell us what's the latest there? Yeah, so the protests uh, in Iran have now entered their fourth week. For a slight recap, for those who haven't been following it, basically these started after a, a young woman, 22-year-old, uh, was oh, she died in police custody after being arrested by the morality police for not wearing her hijab correctly. And this has spilled over basically into a huge protest movement um, fighting for women's rights in Iran. And so this has reached fever pitch. It continues to reach fever pitch, despite the fact that Iranian security Forces are cracking down incredibly hard. Iranian state TV, interestingly, on Saturday was actually hacked in the middle of a broadcast. Um, and in the middle of this broadcast, there was um, this, uh, the, the Ayatollah, the Supreme Leader, uh, turned up with um, targets on their head. A phrase across the screen came up saying, join us and rise up. Our youth's blood is dripping off your paws. Only lasted a few seconds, but really showing you how much momentum this protest movement is gaining. Um, also important to know that it's hard for a lot of these protesters to actually communicate because Iran continuously clamps down on the internet. So this is a message that would have been seen by everyone. Also, another 16-year-old girl killed in these protests. Um, parents saying killed by the police. The Iranian government saying she jumped off a building. Um, this is further stoked the discontent. And it's really now become the largest challenge that the Iranian regime years and it's not going away anytime soon it's a watch here and let's hope that it leads to some kind of fundamental change in run yeah absolutely uh, they're very brave to be doing that let's talk about this this um, thing which OPEC has flagged this huge cut in oil production so when this happens what is expected to be a result of a move like that yeah, so OPEC plus met. Basically, this is these are all the basically the cartel of the, the largest oil producers in the world. The plus basically means Russia. So everyone met and decided, basically led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, to slash production of oil by two million barrels per day, basically pushing up the price of oil. Now this is a huge slap in the face, especially for US President Joe Biden. As we saw a few months ago, he was in Saudi Arabia trying to court the Crown Prince, trying to get them to loosen up some of their oil reserves, up output so that they could solve some of these financial economic woes in the United States. There was that uh, pretty contentious photo of the US president fist bumping the crown prince, and it looks like it was all for naught. The White House, pretty unimpressed by this, has turned around a spokesperson and said, it looks like Saudi Arabia is siding with Russia, and you know this flows into the whole conflict in, the U- in Ukraine as well. So it'll be... It'll be interesting to see what happens to oil prices out of this, but it looks like Saudi Arabia's siding with Russia on this one. Yeah, and and there's a meeting in Algeria between rival Palestinian groups. What are the, what's the hope to what are they hoping to achieve there? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. We're quite often talking about issues is with Israel and Palestine, but also in, in Palestine itself, you have a very fractured mosaic of different groups um, leading different groups of people. And 12 of these groups have decided to meet in Algeria for two-day talks aimed at reconciling and national unity. There's been a years-long rift, which has meant there haven't been elections in Palestine since 2006. And people are starting to lose their trust in Palestinian leadership. Um, One of the biggest points, though, that's being talked about 
is the future of Hamas's military wing. Now, this is a um, the group basically that con- controls Gaza is often behind um, rockets that are fired at Israel from there. And the name of the military wing is the Qassam Brigade. Now, another group, Fatah and Israel, they want to see this, um, the, the armed wing of Hamas completely disbanded. So that'll be a point of contention. But basically, these talks are looking at getting Palestinians to rally together, rally together behind uh, one political force. So that these huge issues which are constantly affecting Palestinian people can finally have some kind of strong political action rather than a fractured political action, especially when it comes to Israel. Yeah, well, there he is uh, from the land near the cheap taxis. That's Alex Beard uh, joining us there from Doha. It is 17 past five. Let's get into a bit of nitty, shall we? Uh, Silver Ferns netball defender Phoenix Karaka hopes an element of surprise is going to help them push the Australian Diamonds when the Constellation Cup starts in Auckland two nights. So the last meeting between the teams was in the Quad Series in January in England. Australia won that one. Uh, and then, of course, having won gold at the recent Commonwealth Games, the Diamonds are favoured to win the Constellation Cup from Holders New Zealand. However, Phoenix Karaka told our sports reporter Bridget Tunnicliffe, well, she's itching to play. In Jan, tour coming back from having baby and like just kind of getting in the gist of things. But now I feel like I've really being solid in my position. Physically, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling fit. So I feel like I'm in a better space confidence-wise to take on Aussie. And I think this team is so different from that Jan tour that it's really exciting in that kind of way as well as it is going to be different. And in a way, they won't really know what's going to come to them because we've got new people in the team. But also, we've grown so much from that Jan tour. So I'm really excited, and I think everyone in the team is really excited to finally get another opportunity to play Aussie. I guess what the Australian Diamonds do well, or what they always try to do, is they move the ball so quickly mm-hmm. and they try and get the defenders' heads spinning. So is the zone the, the main way that you try and combat that? Yeah, I guess denying them that middle space and not going wide with those players. But also we need to be a a lot more physical in terms of our body checks and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, they're always going to have that speed. Defensively, we need to stick together as a unit and that's how we create ball and how we get ball. So if we're able to stay together and stay tight, then that works best for us. Earlier this year, I think you did have a reasonably significant bout of COVID. How long do you think it really took you to fully feel 100% again after that? I'd say still not 100%. Really? <laughs> no, I talking to a few of the other girls who have had it and then had a bit of a flu afterwards are still finding it hard during a warm-up. There's still that element of kind of like a, um, not hard to breathe, but it is a little bit fatiguing, a lot more fatiguing and struggle when we are breathing in the warm-up, but by the time we get through to the full-on training and stuff, we are able to recover and get to where we need to be. But, yeah, a few of us have discussed that, like, probably not 100 to where we used to be pre-COVID. But I think that's kind of something that's come out in the research anyway, is that you probably might not hit 100 when you're an elite athlete because you put your body under so much pressure. But, like, we're nearing that. I wouldn't say that, like, we're definitely 100 all the time. Have the specialists told you to expect that you will eventually feel like you did before, like 100%, or is this something you might just have to deal with on on a long-term basis? Well, the physical pressure that we put our bodies under, we're always going to feel a bit fatigued and a bit um, breathless. And it's always going to be hard to, I guess, 
differentiate how were we before COVID as well because we've never really experienced the effects of COVID. And I guess the ones that still feel it are very sickly anyway. So the likes of me, Sulu, asthmatics. So we've been hit quite hard with it. But we're still able to maintain high intensity. It doesn't really stop us from anything. It's Mm. just how we're able to cope with being breathless. Yeah, the four test series uh, will head across the Tasman next week. 22 past five, I'm Nathan Rarita here at First Up on RNZ National. So between now and the end of the programme, Millie Sylvester gives us the lowdown on Trade Me's best items of the week. And I'll tell you about the story of a marriage that turned into a horse race that turned into an annual party. This week on Trade Me, a wild west town on the North Island's central plateau and a set of very specific stairs. You'll never listen for those. But first, producer Jeremy Parkinson talks with Trade Me's Millie Sylvester about a car perfect for summer, if you can afford it. Now, there has been a lot of money spent on this car. Apparently, there's about half a million dollars in receipts from recent years. So absolutely no expense has been spared on this beautiful vehicle. And of course, the style of convertible is, you know, I mean, it's really, it's fit for royalty and has been loved by so many high-income uh, celebrities and, you know, people through over the years. So it's obviously been in the garage for quite a long time. And, you know, I, I would say that this has, you know, hardly ever even hit the road, to be honest with you. It's been so lovingly kept and restored. So it's pretty cool to see that this car has been loved by so many Kiwi already because the listing has already had 3,000 views and close to 70 Kiwi have it on their watch list, perhaps hoping that, you know, they win Powerball or, or Lotto this week so that they can afford to pay the asking price. And only $10 less than $300,000, that's a a bit of a bargain in Corniche terms, I think. I mean, not that I'm in the market for a Corniche, but uh, I I have been in one or two of them, and they are really just a superb ride. And you don't know whether you're royalty or or a rap star. It's those kind of cars, aren't they? They definitely are. And, you know, like the the people who have had Corniches, to kind of name a few, we're talking Elton John, Frank Sinatra, David Bowie. So, I mean, you know, if you're driving around in one of these, you are absolutely turning heads and people might mistake you for some some high-flying celebrity. Yeah, and if you don't know, the Corniche is a cabriolet. So the top comes down. Perfect for summer, um, knotted hanky if you've if you haven't got much hair and you'll be away and laughing. It's a it's a really beautiful car. This so you can catch that on Trade Me this week. Also on Trade Me in National Park is a it's it, all you could call it is a Wild West town. So currently there's over seven million listings on site, and I have never seen anything quite like this come up in in my time. So it is a Wild West inspired town. Now it is. The whole town, we're talking 10 buildings, a saloon, a courthouse, a movie theatre, a sheriff's office, a general store, a hotel, just the list goes on and on. And this town is, you know, like, it's not a teeny tiny replica. This is, these are proper buildings. It is a replica of a proper 1890s frontier town. And just something that is, is incredible to think that this is hiding somewhere within New Zealand. It even has accommodation for up to 27 guests. So, you know, if, if you're in the market for something 
truly rare and extraordinary and you know imagine taking your friends to your own private town to hang out for the weekend it is in the central plateau of the north island it's on 404 hectares of incredible new zealand native bush Although being there, I think you would feel like you were in America back in the 1800s. So the town comes with its own commercial kitchen, laundry, you know, just accommodation galore. And it's just, you you really have to see this to believe it because an old west town is just something that doesn't come up for sale every day. And we think it's pretty cool. I wouldn't even invite people. It would just be like me just walking around. Just just having your own... True stuff as a cowboy, I love it. Uh, but this one uh, jumped out at me, passenger stairs for a Boeing 747, a, a plane we don't often see in New Zealand skies anymore. No, we don't. And what is, I mean, you know, if maybe if you've got your own private jet or something, you might need a set of stairs to help you, you know, for boarding all of your friends i'm i'm not too sure but yeah since the aircraft has now you know been retired from our skies this is for sale and it it is a very fascinating item i guess to come up on site because I mean, who knows what people might use these for? It might be, a, you know, a funky emergency stairway, maybe elevated abseiling or a flying fox platform. I don't know. But um, a really amazing piece of history and, you know, something relating to NASA doesn't normally come up for sale on site. Definitely not here in New Zealand. So what is really cool about these stairs is that they do have the NASA and uh, Sophia logo. So that makes them very unique but yeah incredible listing here and you know obviously it's a piece of history so it does come with a price and that price is $25,000 or near offer so apparently the price to build them is about $90,000 so you know you are getting a bargain there it will be very interesting to see where where in New Zealand these this set of stairs ends up. Mm, I mean, that's all very fancy, but I get into my 747 the old-fashioned way. I shinny up a rope. That was Millie Sylvester from Trade Me. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. I think I've shinnied for 40 years. Anyway, uh, let's have a look at this day. It's the 12th of October. Uh, On this day, 1935... A little baby called Luciano was born and he grew up to have one of the greatest voices of all, of all time, Luciano Pavarotti, born in Modena in Italy. Another guy's actually, um, it's not fair, he's too handsome, he's good at acting and he can sing as well and dance. Get out of here, Hugh Jackman, 54 years old today. Yeah. Uh, on this day in 1987, the last chart topper by any of the Beatles came out. It was, I Got My Mind Set On You by George Harrison. Yeah. It's his third solo number one hit, but the last chart topper by any of the Beatles, as I said. On this day in 1996, we all went, oh, so what do I tick? One, two, two boxes, because it was the first general election held under MMP. Of course, voters selected 120 members of Parliament through a mixture of electoral contests and party lists. And a big day for the recording industry. On this day in 1901, Three Blind Mice was recorded. It was the very first non-religious recording before that everything before that had been religious so there you go and in this day in 1810 the Bavarian royalty invited the citizens of Munich to join the celebrations of uh, the crown prince and a beautiful princess and then what happened was they celebrated it with a horse race and they went let's call this the October Fest and then the next year they came back and they just drank a whole lot of beer and then um, it's basically just full of Australians and New Zealanders now trying to 
drink until they vomit. And uh, that's the way to celebrate a wedding. So there you go. That is the goings-on and the day of our life that we call the 12th of October. I think this young Joel Bigford might have been a rebel rouser over there at the uh, the Oktoberfest at some time in your life there, Giles. I yeah. learnt the German. Uh, I Did took you? it through high school and university and for a while I was quite proficient and then I sort of stopped using it. So, oh. but, but I, I still, I still dream in German occasionally. Really, which, which is very strange, isn't Ooh, it? That'd be very efficient. Very efficient dream. So you've been to an Oktoberfest, though? Did you? No, use I it? haven't. I oh, haven't you didn't use your powers for good. No, I've been. Um, I'm very abstemious like that. Right. A whole plate of beer and a snitchel, please. That's what I'd say. How do I say in German? Cash is king and still used. Uh, das Geld ist König. Yeah. Uh, well, it's actually not. That's probably a bit better. But cash okay. is <laughs> ca- cash is king. It's actually euros is king. Okay. Um, but uh, cash is king is the old saying. It, this has just come up. Um, Kiwi Bank puts out once a month that says this is the pattern of spending of people who've been using our uh, our cards uh, and the like, or who've been doing transactions through our accounts. And what they found is that the volume of cash withdrawals from ATMs and the like over the counter, 70% higher uh, than a year ago. Now, if the accepted wisdom goes that, you know, cash is on the way out and nobody uses it, this sort of uh, challenges that view. Uh, Kiwi Bank suggests that uh, it might well be that the renewed demand for cash is perhaps tied to people uh, going overseas again with overseas travel. Everybody likes a little bit of cash, but you know, that doesn't actually account for the fact that you know this is Kiwi dollars rather than buying, say, Aussie dollars and like. And in most places, of course, you um, you put your uh, foreign exchange onto a card now. Uh, mm. So there's that. But it would seem that. People like uh, the cash. It also coincides with what seems to be a bit of a slowdown in uh, people buying, especially online. So perhaps people are less online retailers and they're now just doing money out of the uh, hole in the wall and paying for it across the counter. I have to say that I still notice that in a lot of the little cafes uh, and the like coffee shops, uh, you pop in there and go and get one, and there they are. Yeah, There are still people paying $5 notes, $10 notes for a cup of coffee, uh, and putting the change in the bowl for the staff. Yeah. So um, uh, people suggesting that uh, cash is dead, perhaps uh, it's a little premature. No, thank you. There he is, Giles Bigford. Um, oh, I wish I had a German way to say thank you. The, the Dankeschön. Dankeschön. There it is. Of course. Oh, you right. remember the Elvis Presley the Wayne movie? New- song. Wayne Newton song. Dankeschön. Dankeschön. Oh, yes. Yeah, there we go. Whoever Shane was. <laughs> Dankeschön. Lovely. Uh, thank you very much, Giles. Uh, Giles Bigford there. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Yeah, Wayne Newton here that pronunciation all wrong but gee he, he really forged forward with it didn't he uh, let's go to your money markets now what does your New Zealand cash dollar buy you it buys you 
3 US cents, 89.02 Australian cents, 57.63 Euro cents, 50.50 British pence, 4.01 Yuan and 81.51 Japanese yen. Let's go to the east side of the North Island right now. The Tairawhiti region is uh, making sure that they'll be prepared for the next natural disaster. So 20 shipping containers packed with emergency equipment are going to be distributed across the region to prepare isolated communities for tsunamis, earthquakes and also floods. And one of the containers is actually going to be on display at the Gisborne A&P show this weekend. Love an A&P show. And locals, of course, encouraged to get in there and check it out. Tairawhiti Emergency Management uh, Manager Ben Green is with me now. Kia ora, Ben. How are you? Good morning. Very good, thanks. <laughs> oh, yeah, perfect. There we go. Hey, um, these, these pods sound like a great idea. Who's responsible for those? Uh, I guess the planning you know, was an inception following the 5th of March earthquakes last year. I mean, for us, that was a day of uh, three earthquakes within the region, but uh, three tsunami. And that's probably the genesis for the project that started there. It really just highlighted how. Uh, I guess how tenuous our, our remote communities are in particular, and equally what um, the challenge for us would be trying to support them in the event of a uh, quite a significant fracture within the Hikarangi uh, margin or the, the fault line. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, fast that- forward to where we are this year, you know, now running the project, going through the procurement for sort of equipment that really will allow our communities to probably at least give them a good chance in terms of recovery for quite a, you know, post a significant event. So, so in, in these pods themselves, like what kind of things are are, are in there? So the, the, what we have, particularly for the uh, for the first, this is run in three phases, the project, and it's uh, the phases due to the funding we have. So the first phase uh, for what we have underway for the first nine, uh, we have uh, cover tech shelters. So these are deployable emergency shelters. They're not um, they're not put down a warehouse tent, but these are designed to be uh, sort of put up in quite austere conditions. They're um, nine by six metres, so we have a couple of those. We have a generator. Uh, where we've got population density, and I'm talking you know, up to from anywhere from 150 to 650 people we're putting in water treatment systems and you know if you look at Pakistan and what you're going through there your post event particularly the ability to provide fresh or, or at least safe drinking water uh, the project takes that into account where you can put a, a water bladder on the back of a ute and distribute a thousand litres of water so I've got that level um, but not 100% it won't certainly cater for everyone but for certainly the vulnerable uh, and these tend to be located in intimate eye areas that are well outside, really in inundation zones for risk from tsunami or critical floods. Hmm. Uh, it's medical equipment and communications equipment as well. Ben, this is great because, you know, we always hear about debriefs after things and you wonder if they're just meetings that are just a meeting for a meeting. But obviously this has all come out of the back of that. It's amazing to hear too that, um, you know, these uh, this sort of forward planning is going on and also too that people can, can go and have a look for themselves too at the, the Gisborne AMP show uh, this weekend. Ben, thank you so much for your time today and for being here with us on First Up. So those emergency pods there, wonderful idea. That was Ben Green, uh, also fluent in German, uh, from the uh, Tairawhiti Emergency uh, Management Team.
So it's 20 to 6 right now, and I'm Nathan Rarere, and you are listening to First Up on RNZ National. So still to come, the government's proposing a world-first scheme to reduce emissions, but we're going to speak to a climate activist who says it's all just greenwashing, and we look at the future of skiing on Ruapehu. The professionals of Morning Report are here after six to lead you into your day with a quick preview of what's happening on the flagship show. It's Kia to Kim Hill. How are you? I'm well. That's a hell of a sting, Nathan, isn't it? It is. It's the greatest. Well. I feel it's the greatest. I'll, okay. I'll go with that, yeah. Um, on the programme today, the government's new plan, of course, to tax methane and nitrous oxide emissions for farms. Farmers are predictably unhappy. Environmentalists are meh, not enough. <laughs> We'll talk to a range of people, including national leader Christopher Luxon, who, well, I'm not sure what he thinks yet, actually. We will hear how yeah. our immigration officials are using online surveillance to covertly collect data on people. Mm. The war on Ukraine has entered a new phase. Um, whether it is a phase that bodes well for Russia or Ukraine, not sure about that yet either. But now it seems that... Russia are targeting energy supplies as winter approaches. The New Zealand government has imposed, talking about Ukraine, uh, sanctions on Russian oligarchs, including Alexander Abramov. Tailored sanctions in his case. Yes. Just means he can't come here, I think. He's got that big property in Helena Bay. Yeah, north there. And Ruapehu Alpine Lifts has gone into voluntary administration after a combo of COVID and climate change. Hmm. Bad news. I mean, not a lot of good news around. My heart leapt when I saw the word puppies in the rundown. Puppies, I thought. <laughs> but no. Oh, it's, I saw It's an oversupply of puppies from backyard breeders. Have you got a dog? Oh, no, no. We're, we've cats cats and a couple of couple of equines. Ah, oh, well, you can't have cats these days, can you? No, no. It's all bad. So I'd keep that quiet. All it's right, all thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. There's uh, Kim Hill, who's uh, up after six. Yes, as you heard there, Ruapehu Alpine Lifts, um, which manages the Whakapapa and Tūroa ski areas on Mount Ruapehu, has appointed voluntary administ- administrators to assess the state of its finances after a terrible few years. Uh, so just to take you back, uh, Ruapehu Alpine Lifts, uh, devastated by COVID. On top of that, of course, the unusually warm weather, which is happening nowadays unusual, uh, resulted in a poor ski season. Administrator John Fisk from Price Waterhouse Coopers broke the news to the 196 staff yesterday. There's about 65 staff that are uh, permanent staff on permanent contracts. Again, we'll be reviewing uh, how that progresses and advising them as as soon as possible. At this stage, uh, we're continuing to operate the business as usual. We are actually heading towards the end of the ski season, so the intention had been that the whole operation would be ceasing on the 24th of October and, and we'll, we'll be reviewing that as we progress over the next few days. We're encouraging the public to support RAL uh, when they are open and a lot of the staff will be uh, coming to the end of their normal seasonal contracts anyway, but uh, we're, we're keen to explore all options to keep the business trading. Mr Fisk says it's been an incredibly tough time for RAL.
There's some very expensive equipment here that needs to be maintained and, and the cost of doing that is significant. So it's been compounding over the last two or three years that have really impacted on the outcome that we're seeing today. At this stage, it looks like liabilities are in the region of between 40 and $50 million, but we'll confirm that in the next few days as we arrange for a creditor meeting to be held. Uh, he says it's far from clear what will ultimately happen with the company. Everything's on the table at the moment from looking for investors to come in to support the company to the sale of the business as a going concern. I can't take off the table the fact that it could actually all close and, and the assets have to be sold piecemeal, but I'm hoping that that's the last resort and doesn't eventuate at this stage, but we, we can't take it off the table yet. So that was John Fisk uh, from PwC, who's one of the voluntary administrators of Ruapehu Alpine Lifts, uh, which runs the Whakapapa and Turua ski areas there on Mount Ruapehu. Joining me now is the brand new mayor of Ruapehu District. It's Weston Curtin. Uh, kia ora, Weston. Uh, congratulations, uh, by uh, the more, way. Yeah, more, thank you very much for that. Cheers. Uh, more <laughs> yeah, so I mean, okay, bit of a sad news there for a big company. What, when did you find out about the company going into its voluntary administration? Well, I had my first uh, briefing with the chief executive, and um, before I uh, completed the day, I was uh, briefed uh, that uh, something like this could happen, and uh, that uh, you know that REL was in trouble somewhat. And uh, towards the end of the day, really, so I got uh, sketchy sort of information, but uh, a briefing uh, late last night. Gee, hell, hell of a uh, start to the job there for you to get in there. So just you know, here's just one of the biggest things to deal with Western Go is what they said. So just uh, can you paint a picture for the rest of the nation? So they understand. For your district there, how will this affect you? Oh, well, the um, Ariel and the mountain, of course, uh, the ski industry is a jewel in our crown. It always has been over the decades. And uh, people know uh, where Rupehu is, obviously, but uh, it's uh, one of many of the activities that we have. But it's always traditionally been based on a good ski season. And uh, we've got an issue now where some of these ski seasons are not as good as what they used to be, obviously. And uh, so what we've had to do is diverse uh, some of the activities through a all-year-round um, sort of uh, situation. And uh, we're finding that uh, skiing in this area is uh, spasmodic, and this year is no exception. We had one of the worst ski seasons ever, and that uh, caused some alarms. But at this stage, we're really concerned about uh, REL in terms of their ability to operate. Uh, we feel for the staff that uh, are affected by this, and it's not just the immediate staff. It's actually what trickles down below uh, that and we have issues around the towns like uh, Ohakuni National Park, who traditionally have based their business around the good ski seasons, and so we've got to work through some of those issues. And hopefully, uh, over time, we can actually resolve not only the REL issue, uh, but of course uh, how these people are impacted by it. But it's uh, certainly got wide-ranging sort of uh, concerns. Yeah, I think for I mean, I, I grew up in Central North Island. And I think for many of us through there, Ohakuni in the middle of winter, that's a you know that's that was one of the great parts of your life growing up there, you know, with that pumping right in the middle of the ski season there. So uh, you, you mentioned there about how it's, uh, you know, there has been the diversification to have a look at things like, you know, I guess leaning more towards a summer type thing. Is that, Weston, is, is that, have you noticed, like, does the snow line appear to just be getting higher and just not as often at the Onorua Pihu over the last couple of decades or so? 
Oh, that's that's correct. Uh, this year we didn't have the snow that was predicted, and uh, obviously through climate change and and uh, sort of the changing climate uh, conditions, we are facing that dilemma that uh, this could well be a uh, sort of a regular occurrence. Uh, but uh, we never give up. We're really resilient, and uh, we look for opportunities not only on the mountain but elsewhere. Uh, biking, for example, is uh, one of the best things we've got in this community or communities and uh, we have you know the river the hour that uh, we can sort of rely on for all year round activities but uh, of course our media concern is uh, the jewel in our crown the mountain which everyone can relate to not only in the uh, North Island but of course right throughout the world so we really are you know reeling from this uh, situation and uh, we just hope that we can resolve those issues and uh, I think uh, everyone needs to you know just uh, not panic and uh, Hopefully we can work with the um, people concerned that, uh, you know, see something uh, positive come out of all this. Yeah, um, that is the Ruapehu District Mayor, Weston Curtin. Weston, thank you so much for being with us here and best of luck too for everybody there uh, around the community and what is a gorgeous part of New Zealand. Well, the, the government has proposed a world first scheme for farmers will be requ- and it's going to be required to pay for their emissions from 2025. So Cabinet set to sign off on the programme next year bringing to an end a two-decade-long battle. And while some farmers say it might put them out of business, some environmental advocates say the scheme doesn't go far enough. So I wonder where the balance point is, if there is one. And joining us now from Lee, as a lead climate campaigner from Greenpeace Aotearoa, it's Christine Rose. Uh, kia ora, Christine. Thank you very much for being here with us today. Kia ora. Okay, so it's a pretty substantial bit of legislation. It puts the onus on farmers to reduce their emissions or pay up for them. But as you see them, you're not entirely happy with this. So tell us, what what is the problems that you see? The problems are that this is a model based on an industry initiative, and so it supports their own interests while realistically failing to move the dial adequately on the emissions that the industry creates, which are, for agriculture, 50% of New Zealand's total climate change greenhouse gas emissions. So what are the, because I know that um, uh, the agri agri industry's proposal to have farming organisations nominate their own representatives to that price setting board didn't make the cut with Cabinet, so I kind of thought they'd been removed. Where are you looking and going, nope, there's still conflict of interest with, I guess, with the agriculture industry being being involved? It's positive that they aren't directly determining the the price themselves, although they do have a strong influence in it, even in the new model. But the problem is that this is an industry model with just a few tweaks around the edges. So um, it doesn't, it's not powerful enough, especially compared with the impact of direct regulation of the industry, targeting the most egregious pollution, which is from synthetic nitrogen fertiliser in too many cows. So it's an indirect, unproven and hypothetical response when a more direct regulatory response would be more appropriate because really this just amounts to greenwashing if it doesn't shift the dial on the most significant crisis of our moment. Yeah, nitrogen leaching is is horrible of what it does there as well. There's an interesting point that you've made here. You say that uh, the proposal favours dairy over beef and sheep farmers. Why does that work? Tell us the maths behind this. 
Unfortunately, that's the case, and the document acknowledges that this will benefit um, intensive dairy farming because there are more animals on a smaller area. And, of course, that's what leads to the whole range of environmental negative environmental effects from intensive dairying. And so we'll see um, more impact on more extensive, i.e. over a greater land mass, um, for beef and sheep and less impact for dairy and that's the wrong signal that's being sent because intensive dairying produces a quarter of New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions so um, it's, not, it's not relevant or respective to the impacts that are being created. Right, so effectively they'll all get charged the same but actually one of them is, is polluting a lot more than the other two, Is that's the problem. Um, yeah, the the intensity of intensive dairying right. um, means that it has benefits under this scheme. So, um, how do you think? Like, what changes would you like to see to address the problems in there? And also, too, do you think that you would be able to get those across the line with obviously the people in the agriculture sector uh, sector on the other side who go, no, we don't want to move any of this. Well, a more direct and equitable tool would be to address synthetic nitrogen fertiliser at source, at the processor level. And um, this plan does have that as a backstop if the government can't get the machinery in place to implement this scheme. And there's a high likelihood of that, uh, you know, of... of, um, just a failure to implement and we've seen that with a whole lot of other initiatives that look good on paper but just don't come to pass and so instead of having a backstop at processor level we suggest that it'd be more equitable and more direct and therefore effective to target the causes of climate change and greenhouse gas emissions at the skinniest part of the chain and that is at the fertiliser factory level and after all Ravensdown and Balance are the only two companies in New Zealand that import and manufacture synthetic nitrogen fertiliser. So administratively, it would be much easier to address those industries at that point rather than the 11,000, 30,000 farmers of different types across the country. Christine, you've mentioned synthetic nitrogen fertiliser a a few times in this. Nitrogen fertiliser itself, even if it's organic, like even if it's that copper stuff that's scraped in and then sprayed, that's also quite a terrible leaching problem as well. Do you know, is there a different sort of fertiliser we could use that that won't lead to, to, to this kind of leaching? Well, synthetic fertiliser is is the worst, uh, partly because um, it's a fossil fuel derivative and um, so it's very toxic and we're just putting too much on it. The amount of synthetic nitrogen fertiliser applied in New Zealand has grown almost 700% in the last 30 years and that's why our emissions profile is increasing. We've got among the highest... Uh, greenhouse gas emissions per capita in the world, but it's also impacting on our rivers. So uh, around 80% of our lowland rivers are now contaminated on at least one indicator. And of course, we're seeing this epidemic of contaminated drinking water across the country as nitrate contamination from both the fertiliser and the urine from too many cows driven by that fertiliser are having this impact. And so really, to be forward-thinking, the government should be supporting a transition away from synthetic nitrogen fertiliser through a sinking cap and pricing it appropriately and um, but actually just leading to a phase out and supporting much more plant-based regenerative organic agriculture that works with nature instead of against it. 
Christine, thank you very much for your time. You're going to hear a lot about that today. That was a lead uh, climate campaigner for Greenpeace. Christine Rose. Gee, there's been a lot of feedback this morning. A lot of people talking about that beach party in Australia. Uh, this weekend we're buying, we're throwing a beach party in Otaki. It's 55 bucks. Bring your grey table, grey cutlery, grey rubbish bag and grey food. Please also wear grey. Free puppies for anyone who can find them. Uh, that beach party reminds me of the beach sewing events where people actually pay to participate. How clever. Here's another one. It's all very well for fed farmers to complain about the rural emissions payment plan. What's their plan? Sit back and do nothing. Uh, John is a Beatles nerd. He says, no, Paul McCartney had one. Uh, and also, good morning, Nathan. Just a thought, if Kiwis can uh, band together to buy a beach, why can't we do the same to invest in and buying and saving ski fields? Or can we buy shares? Have a great day, Wendy. If you're wondering about the beach stuff, have a listen. Download the podcast. You'll hear it there for first up. Kim and Guy on our next first up. Back in your ears, uh, Paw Paw. Oh, and Charles can speak German. <laughs> <laughs>